Let's pray together. God, I ask that we would have help today in living in your peace so that in whatever state we find ourselves today, relationally, single or married, that we would know that our identity is first in you. And so may we relax into that identity. It's one that was bought for us at a high price in Christ. And so may we live in him and show off his amazing goodness and grace to a lost world that desperately needs to know how to do relationships right. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Again, I want to welcome you to AC3. Special welcome if you're visiting with us. And um, here we are talking about singles today. This is going to be relevant to you, even if you're married, uh, because um, this is kind of a default status. Uh, Let me talk about that in just a second. First of all, let's recognize right out of the gate that singles are a unique group, right? Think about that, the the kind of uh, group that they are sociologically. They're very independent. Singles are free. They are often lonely. Singles are often very unattached to not just another person, a significant other, but they are unattached often to a town or even to a company or to a church. They they can be much more transient and uh, light on their feet. Singles want to belong. They want to fit in somewhere. Uh, They want to be part of a larger community. Uh, Singles also have a lot of challenges. And, And one of the greatest challenges that they face are the comments from everybody else. And a lot of times the comments that throw, are get, get thrown to singles are unconsciously done so by everybody else, often parents or in-laws uh, making sort of suggestive comments like, so you're how old now? Uh, or somebody will say something like, uh, what's a nice girl like you doing single? Or, well, I guess I'll never get that son-in-law. Or, uh, you know, when's it, when's it your turn? You know, all these sorts of things are sometimes meant to be helpful, but turn out to be one of the great challenges that singles live with is the expectation that they should not be what they are. You know, if you asked singles what they want most, they might say, in fact, most might say that what they want the most is to not be single anymore. However, that is not to say, especially these days, that is not to say that they all want to be married. In fact, more and more, singles these days are delaying marriage. That doesn't mean, however, that they are staying single, not technically at least. Here's what's happening. Now, of course, many of them are in relationships. And these are dating relationships, sometimes very casual. Friends with benefits, which is, of course, just a a non-dating relationship where there's sex that's involved. Or something much more serious than that, uh, which uh, most of the time involves... Uh, sexual activity, stringing together uh, such relationships back to back uh, is called serial monogamy. So you have a relationship, a committed dating relationship that involves sexual activity, and then you move from that one to another one. That's serial monogamy. And then doing such relationships in the same house is called cohabitation. And so all of these ways, all of these uh, forms of relationship are ways that singles do singleness without really technically being single. And you see all of it on TV, right? Every one of these kinds of iterations of being single is out there in the culture and considered completely normal. Now, why is it that singles are delaying marriage in our day? Probably you could boil it down to two uh, ideas. Number one is the lousy economy. And the expectation of most singles these days is that you have to have your career set. A lot of them believe that you have to have a house. And all this has to be set before they can marry. Of course, that's going to delay marriage more and more. And a bad economy, a bad job market means you can't get yourself set up 
for marriage, or at least the way people think they have to be set up. Second thing that factors into this is a great fear of divorce. And so those two factors actually marry at some point, forgive the pun, uh, because uh, a person says, I need an exit strategy because I'm afraid of divorce. And so because I'm afraid of divorce, I dare not enter into marriage unless I got my career prospects all set in case this thing doesn't last, which I think it might not, and therefore I'm set up economically to care for myself if the marriage ends. So the two factors of marriage delay really feed on each other. So singles who on average have had a personal, uh, horrible instance of uh, marriage failure in their past, often with their mom and dad divorcing, think to themselves, why fall into the trap? And so they push off marriage. The result is that people are actually delaying marriage today more than they're delaying the birth of children, if you can believe it. Just sit on this uh, little factoid for a second. Average age for women today of first birth, 25.6 years of age. Average age for women of first marriage today, 26.3 years. Just stew on that for a second. And what's the logic there, right? Because a baby is way less commitment than a marriage, right? So let's just go in for the baby because, you know... A man is so much more work or something like that. Now, now here's the ironic thing. If a person took all this data about the difficulty of making marriage work, the pitfalls, the economic pitfalls, the problems, and all that trouble spots, and they decided that it was better not to marry or to not marry again after a first failed marriage, guess what? If that was your decision, the Bible would come in line in agreement with you in that decision. If that's all you decided, you said, you know what, marriage presents a set of troubles or problems and pitfalls, and I'm not getting married. If that was your decision, guess what? The Bible would line up with you and support you in that. That might shock you, but here is what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, an entire chapter devoted to marriage and single issues. Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. So Paul is upholding the privilege of a single life. Prior to this, same chapter, just a couple of verses earlier, he's already said, look, if you do get married, you've not sinned. So he's not denigrating marriage. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So guess what, AC3, unlike many church subcultures, the Bible, A, has a very realistic view of marriage, and some church cultures probably don't, and B, the Bible takes a very high view of the single life, and a lot of church subcultures do not, in contradiction to our own scripture, right? So isn't this a fascinating thing? We believe that the single life is a blessed life. Of course... The master that we worship was single, never married. The guy who wrote half the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, single. Jeremiah, single. Many of the great heroes of the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years, both men and women, lifetime singles. Of course, we believe that, that the single life is a blessed life. At least we should. But... 
the truth that Paul himself acknowledged, again, in the conversation, 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to unpack some more of those verses, was that most people will not have the gift to stay single for a lifetime. It just won't happen. So he says in chapter se- uh, verse 7, same chapter, I wish everyone were single, just as I am. See, he continues to promote the idea of Christian singleness. But God gives to some the gift of marriage and to others the gift of singleness. He understands there's a sense of calling attached to your relational vocation be it single or married. Here's what's important to realize, though, AC3. For us to honor the single life, here's what we have to realize is that all of us at some point are single. It is our default status to which we always return. It is our default status to which we return. So you're single before you marry. Divorce has touched many, many people in this room. And so some are single after a marriage has failed. Or you're single after a spouse has died. And guess what? If Jesus is to be believed, you'll be single in the new kingdom someday. Jesus said, in the kingdom, people are neither married nor given in marriage. Singleness is the default position of everybody. And so in all these seasons, which every one of us goes through, the following then, the following biblical wisdom is going to help us along in this default position and to help us to do singleness well. Okay, so let's talk about three things Biblical wisdom and how to do singleness well. First thing, don't buy into marriage myths. Now, this is another way of saying, basically, is prepare for marriage well. That's another sub-title you know, title for this particular point. Prepare for marriage well. See, if for most of us, singleness is a temporary uh, state in this life, because most of us are going to be married at some point, then we need to get ready for marriage. And we need to realize that singleness is a moment where we can actually uniquely prepare. And one of the great ways for you to prepare for marriage, if that's where you're headed, is to reject the lies that the culture tells about it. It's a great way for you to prepare. So in singleness, you begin to bake in the correct understanding of what marriage should be and the correct expectations for what marriage should be. And the things that you reject are things as follows. Number one, my marriage partner and I will be perfectly compatible. There is no such relationship. Unless you want to marry yourself, and that's just sick. Okay? Right? You, you are not going to be perfectly compatible with anybody. Nobody. Now, you could say are some marriage uh, uh, relationships more, seemingly more uh, fluid and easier uh, to manage than others? Probably. But there is no marriage that is perfectly compatible. There is no such thing. Every marriage requires amazing amounts of sacrificial love. Another marriage myth. Marriage will make the bad stuff go away. Oh my goodness. This is a deeply held belief that, that I've got problems and I'm dragging them with me and then I'll get married and the problems will go away. Some people get married to escape uh, their self-esteem issues. Some people get married to escape home of origin issues. Some people get married to escape their past issues, their drug issues, their uh, emotional issues, their self-esteem issues, their pride issues. I mean, we get married to... S- to, to uh, put solve on our wounds all the time. In AC3, marriage does not fix your secret brokenness. It just does not. You're just going to carry it with you. Now, does it meet critical needs? Yes, certainly it does. But it does not fix your secret loneliness. Uh, our executive pastor, Dan Hazen, he used to have a little sign on his door, because he did a lot, that still does, a lot of counseling, and the sign was a humorous little reminder for people going in for counseling. On the door was a little sign that said, this is not a life-saving device. 
just to set everybody's expectations, right? You're coming in for counsel. I, I, I can't save your life. You've got a savior. It's not named Dan Hazen. His name is Jesus Christ, right? So this is the same thing we can do with marriage. This is not a life-saving device. Here's a third uh, myth. Marriage will complete me. How many of you saw the movie Jerry Maguire? Okay, so if you did, you remember there's a scene in the elevator where Jerry Maguire, who eventually is going to fall in love with this uh, girl who he worked with in the office, and they're in in an elevator having a little awkward conversation when a deaf-mute couple comes into the elevator and begins to sign language to each other. And he sort of scoffs at what they might be saying to each other, and she understands what they're saying. And she, real, and she tells Jerry Maguire that what she has just said to her partner is, you complete me, in sign language. And we're supposed to understand by that, that, that your goal in life, you will be happy when you find another human being who will complete you. You're a half a person until you get married, and then you'll be whole. And friends, that is a great myth. We have to remember that one is a whole number in the Christian life, and God is our soulmate, not any other person. That's not a role for them to fill. The completion of you, uh uh-uh, that's a myth. So remembering all these sorts of things will help us to be content when we're single for as long as we are single. But let's say that uh, God opens up a door for a romantic relationship. Here's a second thing, to do singleness well, to do it Christianly, and that is to not go too fast. Let me illustrate. Um, first time my wife and I bought a car, uh, we had been dragging into marriage my 78 Ford Fiesta, which my dad bought for me when I was 16 years old. So that was our family car, 78 Ford Fiesta. Yeah, there were some problems. My wife will regale you with stories about the problems with the car that we have been driving for the last five years. It had floorboards where you could, you know, see the road going uh, by underneath your feet. There had been a cabin fire inside the Ford Fiesta, you know, all sorts of problems. So we were really looking forward to buying a car, and we had cash. Yeah, I had had a good summer job, and so we went in the fall, and we went to a bunch of different lots, and we had a budget, and it was $5,000 cash money firm. We thought we had all the leverage in our back pocket. But the first place we show up to, first car we look at, was a Nissan 200SX. Remember that little, little uh, two-door coupe from Nissan? It has since gone the way of the Dodo Bird, but it was $6,900. And we had a budget of $5,000. And thus began the great showdown, a.k.a. the Sticker Dicker. And so we begin the Sticker Dicker. Well, the first thing the guy wants to do is get us in the car. So he gets us successfully in the car. And then he says, well, let's take this thing for a spin. So we take this thing for a spin. And then something happened. Our confident, logical mood changed. And lo and behold, our budget number began to fudge. And so we, uh, he could see, when we came back, he could see that he had us. He had exposed our soft underbelly. We loved the car. We were infatuated with the car. We had fallen for the car. And having been driving a 78 Ford Fiesta, it didn't take much to fall for a car. I mean, this car had like an oil gauge and uh, fifth gear, and, and it could go freeway speed, like 65 miles an hour. Oh, we loved that car. Well, what happened? Like, like sheep led to the slaughter, so we opened not our mouths, 
we forked over full price. We did not talk that guy down one red cent. We paid $6,900 for that car. Auto industry insiders have a term for what came over us. They call it the buying mood. It lasts, they say, about 48 hours. And after that, good judgment will often prevail. And that's why they don't want to let you off the lot. That's why they tell you that the car won't be there tomorrow. That's why they tell you, I got five guys lined up with offers on this one. Right? That's why they tell These clearly manipulative tactics work because people in the buying mood have suspended all powers of reason and sound judgment. They focus on maybe one feature of the car and they ignore service records, the blue book price, depreciation values, consumer reports. Why? Because they're in the buying mood. Now you say, Rick, okay, that's a car. But I mean, no one would be that that silly, that short-sighted when it came to something really important like, let's say, selecting a spouse, let's say. For example, <laughs> well, you know the answer to that question. That happens all the time. It happens all the time that people put more effort into the next car they're going to buy than the next person they're going to spend the rest of their life with. It's unbelievable what the buying mood happens when it comes to considering a spouse. We'll do the same thing. We will ignore the service records, the blue book price, and all the other important features. So I do not recommend short courtships. A lot of courtships now are begun online. And I don't, I don't necessarily say that that's a bad thing or that's not. That's just the way it's going to be from now on. Just get used to it. Probably 70% of all relationships from here on out are going to be started online. That's fine. But what happens in the beginning of relationships that are begun through the Internet is a little thing that uh, sociologists are calling disinhibitionism. What that means is when you begin relationships online, romantic relationships and others, you, there's a kind of veneer that comes down and you feel like you're more intimate than you really are, which is one of the reasons you can flame someone out online when you would never do that to them face to face. There's a sense of rushed intimacy online. You feel like you know someone better than you really do. So a rush to the altar is screaming a few things. And I think we should recognize what it's saying about our heart. Any rush through the courtship process is saying, I haven't processed my spiritual brokenness yet. And I need to cover that up as soon as I can. And this person is going to be a nice lifesaver. And so I want to make sure that we get hooked up before anything uh, can upset my plan. I think we have to ask ourselves, what am I afraid of? Because what a rush to the altar might be saying is, I've got lots of fears, and this person is a temporary solve to calm my fears, and therefore we need to get married. We have to ask ourselves, what are we afraid? What are we afraid that we might find out if we just took our time and didn't, you know, get married or, or even get engaged, let's say, after a month or two months or three months, but waited rather a year or two years? Uh, you say, well, Rick, you know, I, I've been in a relationship. We love each other too much to wait. Really. So is more love meaning less waiting? That's just an interesting correlation. The Bible actually describes a story that says the exact opposite in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, where we, we're described of, you know, a, a relationship with, that's begun in an old ancient Near East culture where there's great uh, uh, bride dowries and all that kind of stuff. And in this particular case, a guy was forced to work for seven years, basically, as an indentured servant for the bride price. And here's what the Bible says about Jacob waiting for his beloved Rachel. It says, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So more love 
in this particular case, apparently led to a greater capacity to wait as opposed to a diminished capacity to wait. Maybe this is something a little bit backwards in our thinking. Ellen Creek, listen, courting over a period of time gives you a chance to answer questions. Answers you can't microwave. Some people say, oh, but we talk, Rick. I mean, I know, I've only known him for a month, but we talk and talk and talk. For hours we've talked. And I know everything about him. You do not know everything about him. There are some things you cannot microwave. How responsible is this person vocationally? You can't figure that out in a month or two or even three. How, how does she do relationships? Like, how does she do friendships? Is there a stream of broken friendships behind her that she just leaves in her wake without even realizing it? You can't figure that out in a month or two or even three or six. You've got to see this person play out their life and their habits and their character. How does he handle money? Am I truly attracted to her? Do they tell the truth? Does he care for his health? Does she share the same spiritual foundation as me? I mean, are we going to raise our children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord? as Christians do together, or are they really not on the same spiritual page as I am? That stuff, friend, you can't microwave that stuff. So do not go too fast. Lastly, don't compromise your sexual purity. Now, one of the reasons why people today struggle a lot less with point two, like I already said, right? People are delaying marriage. They're not rushing. One of the reasons why they struggle less with point two is because they struggle more with point three. It's easier to wait, it's easier to not rush when you are putting temporary sexual satisfaction over your loneliness. And so the TV culture just assumes that after a certain point, singles will have sex. That's just assume that you just will do that. If you don't, then there's something wrong with you. In one television show, there's a, there's a dating couple and they go to a psychologist because they've got a great problem. What is it? They haven't had sex yet. <laughs> so it's like... This is, this is a, an issue for, like, this is a psychosis, apparently, now, to not have sex in a dating relationship before you get married. These days, singles don't debate about waiting for marriage to get sexually active. That's laughable. They debate, rather, about how many dates that you should have before you should expect to have sex. In fact, that's an active debate amongst singles in the online community. How many, uh, how long should you wait? Is it like three dates, or is it six dates, or what's the cue? What's the expectation? I have a story about that. There's this one guy's girlfriend. He asked him to have dinner with her parents one night, and he thinks that's the cue. Like, that's the cue. It's time for us to go all the way. So the boyfriend uh, wants to prepare. He takes a trip to the pharmacist to get some protection. And this particular pharmacist was very helpful, helped the boy for about an hour uh, decide on just what he needed to do that night the boy shows up at the girl's parents house and he meets his girlfriend at the door oh she says i'm so excited for you to come in and meet my parents come in we're already at the table so the boy goes inside and is taken to the dinner table where the girl's parents are seated the boy quickly sits down and offers to say grace and bows his head without making eye contact a minute passes and the boy is still deep in prayer and he's continuing to pray and pray and and after three minutes he's still praying and finally the girlfriend nudges him and kind of whispers to him under the table um i had no idea you were so spiritual or religious and the boyfriend whispers back and says i had no idea your father was a pharmacist it'll come to you see most people i talk to 
you know, they look at the Bible's expectation. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. The marriage bed should be honored by all. The marriage bed should be kept pure and be honored by all. That means by all, by, by singles 